This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 6, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. America faces a baby bust, the consequences of which promise to be substantial. And yet it's not clear what can or should be done policy-wise to fix it. Tim Carney is author of the forthcoming book tentatively titled One Big Happy Family, How a More Child-Friendly America Can Give Us a 21st Century Baby Boom. We spoke earlier this year. Let's begin with the obvious, Tim. You have six children. This is true. In your home. And so I wonder the extent to which your uh, natalist policy preferences stem are a sort of motivated reasoning, a rationalization <laughs> of the fact that you have six children. Look, I benefit from small families because people buy stuff for their kids and it's like barely used and then they sell it secondhand, like barely touched. Well, by the time we get through something, six kids have had and it's totally destroyed. Um, but my, uh, I'd say my six kids reflects the philosophy, the worldview that's connected to my natalism. Um, but I think I can argue for, for natalism from lots of different perspectives. But my ultimate one is that people are good and that um, human beings are a benefit to others, but even aside from worldly benefits, that you know, uh, human beings are good. This is rooted in my, my Catholic faith, et cetera, but also just uh, sort of an optimism and a, uh, a philanthropy. So, uh, you know, libertarians will defend uh, large groups of people, <laughs> that is to say families, uh, on the notion that, uh, you know, leaning on Julian Simon to say, look, people are the ultimate resource. Yeah. To the extent that we have problems, more brains working on those problems is of uh, great benefit. But for you, not a libertarian, uh, it's a little more... There's a little more to it than that, and I think I and I want you to make the case mm -hmm. to libertarians uh, who uh, might otherwise bristle at uh, some of the things that uh, that you advocate. Yeah. So the the first thing is to say that that uh, Julian Simon point, the way I put it, um, is uh, like an economist, which is to say human life, and this is something libertarians certainly agree on. Sort of human life is better today than it was 500 years ago. And it was better 500 years ago than it was 500 years before that. There are lots of up and downs, but the general arc of a sort of human, um, the, our health, our happiness, our lifespans is generally going up. So what has made human life improve? Has it been the climate changing? Has it been space aliens? Has it been lizard people? No, it's been other people. So an economist would say the expected value of every new human is positive. There are lots of bad people. Like, you know, uh, some of my uh, high school friends probably have a negative influence on the world, right? But so the 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 truth that, that Julian Simon says that humans through innovation, through um, just through the, the, uh, the gains from trade, the gains from commerce, the gains from friendship make life better. Um, I think that there's a a deeper truth that underlies that fact, but I think that fact reflects uh, a, a general human goodness. Combine that with a sort of uh, a intellectual humility that anybody who believes in, you know, free enterprise has to have about we're, we're not able to plan. Then suddenly you realize, okay, you know what? It's like 
if you're if you're humble about what sort of advertising works as a as a businessman, you throw out all sorts of advertising. We don't know ahead of time which people are going to improve, and so the expected value is above uh, zero. So that's all just an argument that um, a shrinking population, which we would face if the current birth rates continued, a shrinking population would be bad. The what to do about it stuff um, is interesting, but. Uh, the first thing I want to try to do is convince people, okay, you know what, if we're having less than 2.1 babies per woman, uh, we're setting ourselves up for a problem. So I, I want to get to uh, this uh, birth rates in the United States and around the world as they are in decline, but 2.1. Yes, 2.1 is what's called. Explain the, that figure. Yes, so that is the, called the replacement rate. So it's a the the statistic is called the total fertility rate, which you know the word fertility to a lot of people has to do with biology, your ability to get pregnant, your sperm, your eggs. But when demographers use it, they just mean how many babies do people actually have? And the total fertility rate is a number that sort of models the average woman in her whole childbearing years. How many can we expect to have based on what? women are having today. And so 2.1 is a replacement rate because they have to replace men who are really bad at having babies. They have basically zero throughout human history. That's and, a controversial statement. These and, days too. Point, and then the point one is to replace those that don't live to uh, childbearing age. And so if you are at, if you are, if your population is below 2.1, for an extended period of time, for more than a generation, your population will start shrinking, absent immigration, et cetera. Now, the problem is if the global uh, fertility rate is below 2.1, there's no prospect of immigration from other planets to here. So the world population will start shrinking. So just to run through where various countries are, the US before the pandemic was at 1.7 births per women. Europe was at about 1.5, 1.6. The only wealthy country above 2.1 was Israel, which is about 3.0. But even a lot of uh, poor developing countries, such as our closest neighbor and our primary source of immigration, Mexico, was below 2.1. Every country in the world has de declining birth rates over the course of the last 20 years. They're all going down. And some countries, such as Korea and a lot of the Mediterranean countries in Europe, are way down about one or below, meaning that their populations are already shrinking. All right. So, uh, you know, you, there are a lot of different, you have a lot of different arguments on behalf of having uh, large families, that is, in mm -hmm. particular, Americans, extremely wealthy country, yeah. uh, uh, wealthier, uh, wealth, wealthier than, uh, I think, any European country. Yep. Uh, and and yet we are among the countries that is producing the fewest yep. relatively. Uh, why is that? I think ultimately it's cultural. It's that we're not family friendly enough. And that, um, you know, so I ask people this all the time. I've been going around the country for a couple of years. And every time I ask people, why aren't, why aren't Americans having too many babies? And a lot of people say, oh, well, you can't afford it anymore. There's ways in which that's true, but I think ultimately that's way overstated. Um, there's uh, people who just say, well, it's harder to get married these days. I think that's part of the culture. I think, you know, people do get married later. Um, there's, but I think that when I just was in Israel, you just see a culture where it's sort of expected and normal that you have kids 
that you have a lot of kids and that you'll have young kids when you're doing normal stuff. And that's sort of built into the culture. Like at a nice restaurant at 9 p.m., there's going to be a eight-year-old kid there. And there's going to be a two-year-old kid at the like slightly nice, less nice restaurant called Pizza and Beer. There's literally a place I, I passed by in Israel on a, on a beautiful night in Tel Aviv called Pizza and Beer. I was like, that looks great. And I looked in and there's a bunch of kids. I was like, this is awesome. This is sort of my American dream right here in Tel Aviv. Um, and then in my own life, my own travel, seeing these subcultures in America, whether it's uh, Mormon towns right outside of Salt Lake City, or whether it's kind of the some of the conservative Catholic circles that I run in, where just sort of everything is a little more structured, but also just the norm is you might have six kids. You might see a 14-year-old boy who's put in charge of his two-year-old younger sister, and that's perfectly normal. And the more normal it is, uh, the more you have it. So part of it is almost just it's become more normal to not have kids. It's become weird to have kids before you're 30. And it's certainly become weird to have four, five, six kids. And so we're having less. Uh, women have more control over their uh, child bearing than ever before. And, and that's a good thing. Yes. More important for the a more important cause of the baby bus, that's also a good thing for women, is they have more career and education opportunities than they did 50 years ago. So the main way in which it's true when people say, I can't afford, it's too expensive to have kids, is that there is more opportunity cost. So this is part of the problem, is that some of the causes of this bad thing, which is a baby bust, are good things. So first, on you know the the birth control pill, I'm a Catholic, I don't really like the birth control pill. If you're listening and you're saying, hey, Tim, should I use birth control? I'd say, no, don't. But that's not something I'm going to, I'm going to hard. It's not a policy argument. It's not a policy argument. But the uh, added control um, that the economic sort of independence of women uh, results in, you know, Tyler Cowen would say, fewer women get married to like crappy guys. Um, and then women have more ability to get education and more ability to get good jobs. And so taking time off to take care of a kid or just structuring your job to be more flexible imposes more economic costs. And so I, I don't have to say, let's take these freedoms away from women. I have to say, let's shape the culture differently so that um, those costs are softened. I'm not talking about tons of handouts, but again, it's a, it's a more cultural changes, slight policy changes, et cetera. Now, if the United States were to wake up tomorrow, all, all the governments at state and the state and federal governments were to wake up tomorrow and say, we gotta mm -hmm. engage in large scale public expenditure mm -hmm. on behalf of, uh, having larger families. In, in the U.S. Now, most libertarians would oppose that. Mm -hmm. I, I would oppose that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, to the extent that that these governments decided to do it, run through the math. How expensive is that? It would be, I, I can imagine it would be enormously costly. So, I mean, there's two gaps we could think of. The 1.7 where we are up to 2.1, which is replacement. But then there's a bigger gap, which is a 1.7 where we are up to 2.5, which is still the expressed desire of that's how many kids the average woman wants to have. That hasn't really changed. It plummeted for a while, but since the 80s, it's been about there. Um, I mean, it's, it 
first of all, the most efficient way to do it is just through child tax credits and giving people cash. More clever government expenditures, such as you know, um, paid parental leave or subsidized daycare, um, those are not; those have proven to not be as efficient. But it would be prohibitively expensive. It's like one of those things where you're like embarrassed to even say the price tag. If you just turned all the federal budget into cutting monthly checks to parents, what it took to get us up to 2.5 would be a majority of the, the federal budget. We're talking trillions of dollars. Like you're not going to do it that way. But what can governments do that libertarians wouldn't object to? Governments are the ones who uh, pave streets and build sidewalks and build playgrounds and that sort of stuff. The norm in, in a place like Israel is when they're building a new development, it's with the idea of family. So you're going to have three-bedroom apartments in the same as the one-bedroom apartments. There's going to be a playground in the middle. And a lot of times the idea is it's going to be built so that the, the kids, once they're, you know, five and old enough to go out of the house, but not old enough to cross the street, they don't have to cross the street to get to the playground. That sounds really small, but if you dedicate a lot of your sort of urban planning, et cetera, to that kind of thing of how do we make life easy for parents, you're going to get um, you're going to get a lot more people who see their neighbors having two kids, see it's not too hard, and they turn it around. And uh, schools, um, fighting crime is part of um, uh, is part of making neighborhoods safer. A lot of what I write about in, in this book I'm writing is uh, parents need to be able to ignore their kids more. <laughs> so what government policy, which is not government babysitting their kids, but what government policy can make it easier for us to ignore our kids? Part of it is don't prosecute parents who, lead, <laughs> who try to be free range for parents. For example, yes. yes. Um, you mentioned sidewalks and apartment and dwellings and things like that. A lot of people delay uh, having kids because of the expense of housing. Yep. And uh, commutes are... Uh, a, huge, a huge, very a huge part family. Of, yes. A huge part of housing policy is how long is your commute? Um, did the pandemic give us anything in terms of improving the possibility of families to uh, engage in much shorter commutes? My commute is three minutes. Yeah. Um, from my bedroom to my office. Um, you know, it, did that give us anything positive? I yes, with an offsetting negative, I would say. People like you and me, um, this is like kind of like cronyism. People who already have like climbed the ladder a little bit benefit and people who haven't entered the family formation uh, stage of their life probably suffer. Um, that uh, the commute is anti-family. Um, American parents, especially moms, if they got what they wanted, it would be to work part-time but pick their kids up at 3 p.m. That's more doable after a lot of this work from home stuff is uh, is in place. I think younger people with uh, less vibrant workplaces suffer. They suffer professionally. They suffer making it harder to uh, climb the economic ladder, make more of a family wage. It's, they, it's harder to find a mate. It's harder to find training. Um, so the like remotification of work definitely is good for people uh, like you and me, married, have kids, have young children. I think it, it could be a long-term negative because of the harms it imposes on the the unmarried singletons in their 20s and early 30s. All right. So on behalf of families, what should we do with land use planning? I mean, so the main thing is there's a couple things. One, and this is not a, uh, there's not a quick policy answer for this, but a big part of what families want is 
at least a small yard. <laughs> so like your little ones can climb on one of those plastic little tykes thing in the back um, and then be closer to parks. So there are a lot of places that do that. I mean, the ideal, I think, if, if you said, hey, Tim, we're going to give you a large plot of land, you're going to make a town, it's going to be pro-family. Um, there would be modest, either single family or duplex houses with a yard that's big enough to have over another family for a barbecue and as many kids as possible without having to cross a street or at least not a big street, be able to run off to the park. So parents can say, you go out, don't come back till I ring the dinner bell. Um, I, I literally, <laughs> yeah. we were talking last night. Yes. I literally said that that is what I do to my children. And that is sort of the uh, American dream. So I would, um, I would build uh, a range of houses down to especially starter houses, because what you need when you're having your first kid or when like us, we, you know, you have three kids under the age of four is different than what you're going to need or want uh, when the kids are older. So the more starter houses, small houses with a small yard accessible to stuff. So something like a more dense suburbia is probably half of the, the dream for getting more um, more kids, but also more dense suburbia with a uh, a shorter commute. So that also means more um, working from home, more um, employers who aren't just in downtown, more employers who are out in the suburbs is going to be uh, part of it. But also just uh, the U.S. has so many regulations that make housing more expensive than it needs to be. And on one level, I would say if all you could do is just generally deregulate, allow tons of building and houses become cheaper, over the long run, that's going to make a more family-friendly America. All right. So uh, the baby bust, largely cultural. Yes. Some of this, some of what has produced the baby bust has been uh, on net good for women. Mm -hmm. Women aren't having as many kids as they would like. Yes. Uh, in this country and presumably increasingly in other countries as yes. well. This seems fairly intractable in a way. To make it sound even more intractable, it's self-reinforcing. The more you go through your 20s and none of your friends have kids, the more they're all meeting up for brunch, the less you're likely to jump on that. The more that society is built up, businesses prop up, sort of the physical infrastructure is built uh, without children in mind, the harder it's going to be for people who do have children. And furthermore, as the, the working age population has already begun to shrink because the baby boomers are retiring, our baby bust is really only about 15 years old. It started with the Great Recession and then got worse. So in a few years, the working age population is really going to be plummeting because there are fewer people born every year after 2008. And so then when we have a shrinking working age population, the sort of the opportunity costs that we referred to earlier of leaving the workforce are going to get greater. So there's going to be more pull. So this is what's happening in places like Korea. Thomas Malthus thought that that's where the word Malthusian comes from. He thought that uh, birth rates would be self-correcting, that if they got too low, then people would start making a lot of money and they'd be able to have more kids. But below 2.1, birth rates, see, birth rate collapse seems to be self-reinforcing, that the fewer babies people have, it makes it less desirable for people to have babies. So that's part of what makes it intractable. Part of what makes it tractable <laughs> would be um, that we've had cultural shifts before. The baby boom was totally unexpected. Demographers did not know that was coming. And so that's why I'm saying we can have a 21st century baby boom, but we have to realize it's not just an economic thing, it's a cultural thing. So to the extent that a lot of this, at least in the U.S. and increasingly elsewhere around the world, that this is a cultural problem of too few new people, 
um, you know, I think it's worth making the case on behalf of having kids yep. and having more kids. Uh, you have six. I have half that much. I guess I have three. Uh, I think I have three <laughs> kids at my house. It's you know, as they say, when when you have more than two, you have to move to from a man to man to a zone defense. Um, but it uh, this it, being a parent is one of the most uh, on a daily basis crushing in a sense, <laughs> and, but it also makes me at least want to be a better person. Yeah, it makes me want it. Make it gives me people in my life to whom I want to give the most uh, powerful mental and emotional tools to make them uh, productive and happy adults. And that process is the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. Yes. That's really well put. Um, a slightly different way I would put it is, uh, A, when I argue for, you know, playgrounds that the kids can walk to themselves, et cetera, I'm saying we should make parenting easier than it is. But then, you know, you sort of spoil the ending when you say it's always going to be the hardest thing you ever do. <laughs> but to get back to it being easy, my argument is it's the easiest path to a life of virtue. If your goal is high enough, if it's a high enough peak, then um, yeah, parenting is still a hard road, but any of the roads that are easier than that are not taking you to somewhere adequate. I actually think being a, a man or a woman of virtue without um, marriage and parenthood is more difficult. I mean, so I'm a Catholic, so we have priests, there are monks, there are nuns. I know lots of people who have chosen a life that doesn't have these things. They've chosen a harder road, and a lot of them know that. So how is parenting easy? The, the, the sort of the, the biblical way I would put it is Jesus told us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, right? You and I wake up, there are hungry, naked people in our house. They're right there. It's so easy. The most, the first selfless thing, ask any married guy, 90% of the selfless things he's done has been for his wife, but also for his kids. And it becomes possible to even do them with joy. I think you were the first one to say that when we were having dinner last night, to, to do something for someone else and it makes you happy. Like that is, um, that's the sort of Aristotelian happiness uh, that a lot of us are, that all of us should be seeking in life. And I think that uh, parenting makes it uh, more possible. Another thing is you just notice more things, just this is a little thing, but uh, one writer put it, uh, going for a walk, with a five-year-old is like going for a walk with a great poet. Like suddenly they're with Wallace Stevens or whatever. It's like, there's an airplane. Those two flowers have reversed colors, whatever it is, the same path that you walk, adults stop taking in new information because it's not rational to us. And then little kids pointed out to us, there's a million ways in which kids fertilize us. They make our life more alive. And, um, and alive often means harder. It means messier, less sterile. Um, but it, uh, it certainly, I think, I argue, uh, brings you more lasting happiness. Tim Carney is author of the forthcoming book tentatively titled One Big Happy Family, How a More Child-Friendly America Can Give Us a 21st Century Baby Boom. We spoke in January. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 